Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis, and this week I talked to Stephen Bush and George Eaton about the Chinese Premier's visit, the tax credit row, and Corbyn's new spin chief. Then Tom Gatti talks to William Boyd about John le Carre's new novel. It's been a big week in British politics as we have rolled out the reddest of red carpets for the Chinese Premier. But there has also been trouble behind the scenes with a vote on tax credits and a maiden speech in the House by a Tory MP in which she took on the government's policy. I'm joined by George Eaton, our political editor, and Stephen Bush, editor of The Staggers. George, first of all, you've written your column on China this week. And you've made this uh, theme about the idea that we, just as we kind of currently talk about kind of Europhiles and Eurosceptics, then we're going to have the same discussion about, about China in the future. Why is that? What's changed? Mm. I think this is the first British government that has had an overarching sort of coherent gay strategies towards China. And it's very much a positive one. George Osborne and David Cameron have explicitly said they want Britain to be China's best partner in the West. They want Britain to be one of the most open economies to Chinese investment. And that means there has been a downgrading of human rights. The issue is uh, of much... Uh, less importance for the government than it was um, under the coalition and even more so than it was under Labour. There have been £35 billion worth of deals, perhaps most significantly China's taking a a third, a one-third stake in in Britain's uh, new nuclear This is Hinkley Point C. Hinkley Point C, that's right. And and so, of course, Britain now has... uh, a lot more at stake in its relationship with, with China than before and, and people are responding to this and it cuts across left and right. So Steve Hilton, David Cameron's former director of strategy, proud free marketeer, has been one of the most vociferous critics of the stance the government's taken. Then of course you've got others on the left uh, such as John Ross, Ken Livingston's former economic advisor who teaches at a, at a university in China and who's been a Jeremy Corbyn supporter uh, criticising those who've been emphasising China's terrible human rights record um, by saying, look, it's pulled more than 700 million people out of poverty. Isn't that a real achievement that we should be celebrating? And so I think that um, this is going to become a, a much more significant dividing line in British politics. And, and it feels as if we finally caught up with the reality that China's the world's second largest economy. It's likely to overtake the US at some point in, in, in the near future. And uh, our position towards China is really going to be far more significant in some ways than our position towards Europe. And Stephen, there was an unfortunate kind of piece of optics, I think you would say, this week. Um, the, the steel factory in Redcar is shutting down, um, and that's going to be, lead to the loss of more than a, a thousand jobs. One of the reasons that's been given for that is because China is, is subs- heavily subsidised its steel industry. It's dropping you know, very cheap steel onto the market, and other people can't compete. So at the same time that you have Cameron Osborne lauding you know, Chinese infrastructure building in Britain, you have the spectre of the fact that they won't protect 
companies and jobs in Britain. I know um, Laura Kunzberg at the BBC asked a, a question about this. Is there anything that they could have done for that, that steel plant that they should have done? There's lots they could have done. So the government line is in the EU means that you can't intervene in steel because overproduction of steel is, has been a consistent bugbear of the European economy. But as the Italians and the French are both saying, you can, yeah, you can talk about environmental protection, you can, you, know, you, can, you can use lots of opt-outs in a way that allows you to protect it. I personally think that they should have done so because... Um, there's this idea that is very prevalent in wonk circles and in the top of the Conservative Party, this idea, oh, we'll move up the value chain. Well, China wants to move up the value chain and away from dangerous jobs like steel working. So Britain is going to be competing with China on steel as well as on uh, IT jobs, IT jobs like uh, tech, software. So you need to have a broad-based economy. And it also will devastate a large chunk of the uh, Teesside economy. Uh, it, is, it is, I think, a hugely short-sighted mistake. Um, and also the reality is whenever we talk about retraining and reskilling, we are uniquely bad in Britain at reskilling 40-something. So what we basically mean is, don't worry, kids, your parents will be unemployed. You, you will struggle to, to get by, but we'll teach you how to become a programmer. It doesn't uh, really work. But George is exactly right. The kind of China question is going to be sort of one of the live issues of uh, of British politics. In fact, the odd thing is, is we talk a lot about how, oh, what can the Labour Party learn from Canada or America or Europe? But the interesting thing is, is these arguments have very similar echoes across uh, African democracies, where China, Chinese investment and the kind of strings which come attached to it have has been a live political issue basically in every African election since about the year 2000. So it's going to be interesting to see if some of those arguments start to become uh, ballot box issues in the same way. And I think um, it's been a big week domestically too with tax credits. So Heidi Allen, who is a new Tory MP, stood up and said, you know, if we're compassionate conservatives, we should be against this. It was quite a stirring speech, particularly so since, you know, there is a feeling that this is George Osborne's baby and he's got the party pretty well disciplined. Um, George... But he's not for turning, is he? No, he's not for turning at the moment. Although I think the chance of a modest U-turn, modest readjustment, has it has increased. So I think the autumn statements, uh, which is on the twenty fifth of November, is is the moment everyone's um, planning for and awaiting. And um, he would have the chance to take up, for instance, the proposal that Frank Field, the chair of the Work and Pensions Select Committee, has made, which is to ensure that the lowest earners, those earning below £13,000, uh, wouldn't lose out. And um, he's proposed the way in which you could adjust the, the taper rates and the thresholds to ensure that it wouldn't cost the government anything. And that is crucial, of course, because the reason, one of the reasons George Osborne is making these cuts, of course, is so he can meet his target of a budget surplus by 2019. The one thing 20. I think is, um, is really interesting about this is that for the first time, I, really, I think Osborne's lost the story. I just, what I don't really... I'm not getting for them at the moment is the story of why they need to do this because I think you know having watched the the, the sort of rhetoric around austerity where well, there was very much presented as we need to tighten our belts otherwise we'll end up like Greece you know this is what we need to do bedroom tax you know this was a kind of we need to make work pay we need to kind of you know what, what, I, what I don't think he's nailed with this is it, I think everybody just thinks this is just this is just a mean thing I mean and no one seems to be buying his his rhetoric about the idea that the minimum wage will eventually compensate and actually 
it just seems very free market at the expense of working people. I mean, is that is that different? Have there been other mm. circumstances where he's done that before? I think the problem they've had is uh, they obviously announced the living wage, essentially a higher minimum wage, to give them some political cover and initially gave the impression that no one would lose out, that this would directly compensate them. In fact, of course, immediately after that, the Resolution Foundation and others pointed out, look, there are going to be people who lose out no matter what. And the Treasury and ministers are now tacitly admitting that, or even explicitly admitting there will be losers. I think, actually, the government would have been better not to pretend that there weren't losers, which is the mistake that Gordon Brown made over the Tempe tax rate, but to say, yes, there are losers, but you know, we have to reduce the deficit. And um, if we don't cut tax credits, are we going to cut schools and hospitals? Mm-hmm. And perhaps Labour could propose what they'd cut, or at least where they'd raise taxes, which is essentially the argument that they used in the last parliament, and which, of course, didn't work too badly for them since they got a majority. Yes, I, yeah, yeah. I think and that, an echo of therefore what New Labour did as well, which is that they always kind of said, well, this is how many schools you could pay for this, you know, putting it in those real terms. Stephen, I just want to come to you about Michael Meacher, who is the veteran MP who died this week. Um, he's a, a bit a towering figure on the on the left of the party. His his death also means um, an, an, a by election in Oldham West, his seat. He has a pretty thumping great majority, fourteen thousand, but UKIP second, and then the Conservatives very quickly behind them. Is this? Is there any possibility that Labour might lose that by-election? Yeah, I'd say there's a one in ten chance that Labour could lose the uh, the by-election. Demographically, although it looks quite different to the neighbouring seat of Haywood and Middleton, where obviously uh, UKIP came came within about an inch of taking the seat uh, from Labour. Six hundred votes, wasn't it? it yeah, was very it was, small. It was very close. Um, and then, as now, uh, so UKIP during that by-election was distracted by the fact that they had a much more winnable fight in Clacton at the same time, so they put no effort into Haywood and Middleton. UKIP at the moment is um, doing what they seem to do after every general election, which is collapsing into infighting, this time over the uh, in-out referendum, which obviously is their their big cause. Labour staffers in their field team are quite nervous about it because it is a fairly UKIP-friendly by-election, and Labour's UKIP problem has got worse since Corbyn was elected because basically under Ed Miliband, Labour was losing votes to the Greens and UKIP and they weren't really sure whether or not they were going to try and stop the hemorrhaging from the Greens or the hemorrhaging from UKIP. And in the end, they kind of did a bit of both and didn't work very well. What Corbyn's election has basically done is that has completely stopped the hemorrhaging to the Greens. In fact, the Greens have been knackered by, uh, by Corbyn. The problem is that's come at the expense of accelerating the uh, the UKIP problem. So in some seats, the the net gain in votes will be to Labour's advantage. The fear in seats like Oldham West is that the loss to Labour far exceeds the gain. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there. Uh, and finally, I just want to pick up an appointment that um, Team Corbyn have made this week. Uh, so we've had the launch of Momentum, their new group, which is big news. Um, but also they've appointed finally now a, a Director of Communications, which is Seamus Milne, the gar- former Guardian columnist, who is actually going to be on, on leave from The Guardian. George, this was a controversial choice. And I think probably people who work in the media sort of assume that everyone would know why it was a controversial choice, whereas people in the wider uh, public didn't. Well, it's a controversial choice because Seamus Milne has taken has has been writing columns for the guardian for a long time and has often taken positions which to put it mildly a lot of people disagree with um so he defended uh the what he described as the iraqi resistance against um british and american troops uh, uh following the 2003 
um, invasion. Um, he's often defended um, uh, Putin against uh, against Western critics. Um, he said that you know, the Soviet Union's record um, is nowhere near as bad as, as people suggest, and and, and 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 praised a lot of the the gains that were made um, under under its leaders' views, which are 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 sort of not widely represented in British politics. And that's the reason that he's. He's got the job essentially, probably closest to Jeremy Corbyn's position, and and I and people often say, you know, you do need someone in that job who you can trust, who uh, who understands your who understands your positions and and can make the case for them. The criticism that will be made is, of course, Jeremy Corbyn's missed the chance to appoint someone who had had wider contacts. Yes, or somebody with, with broadcast ability, for example, which I think that um, you know they feel is a, is a, is a, an important way of going over the heads of papers who are very partisan. Um, Stephen, you have, you published a blog on the Staggers, which was really interesting, from John McTurnan, who did a similar role for Jim Murphy in Scotland. Now, he's controversial for almost exactly the opposite sense of, uh, uh, for reasons, really, for being not very much seen as being very much on the right of the party. But his advice, nonetheless, was quite interesting, I thought. Oh, yeah, his, the, the advice, uh, if you haven't read it yet, I, I strongly urge you to check it down. It was, uh, it was you know, very generously expressed. It was, I think, very good advice about the importance of, uh, of strategy, which is the main part of Milne's role. John McTurnan has excellent political instincts. He understands message discipline, all of this kind of thing. And it may very well be that Seamus Milne has a similar gift for it. But right from the beginning, because uh, uh, John had been in, he'd been a commentator for ages, he'd been out of uh, the political game for so long, uh, he had become part of the story. He'd kind of, it's a bit like, in some ways, it's a lot like Peter Mandelson, who has undeniably a lot of skills as a strategist. But Peter Mandelson is such a huge figure in his own right now that you can't really have him as your... Crowd out the message Yeah, he crowds out the message. Um, and that is kind of the the Milne problem. Partly because, I mean, I think the, the, the line which I suspect the Conservatives will throw back at Labour is him saying that um, the murder of Lee Rigby was not terrorism in a conventional sense. And basically, the Conservatives want the next election to be about terrorism. Uh, governments fight one of two elections. Don't let the other lot ruin it if they've uh, done a successful job of it. I doubt the Conservative government will have done a successful job of it, so that message won't be available. Or don't trust the other guy. Um, and they already have this, uh, this Bin Laden quote uh, that they are using slightly out of context, but the dispiriting thing for Labour is that even if you quote it in context, it's more reasonable, I think, to most metropolitan liberals, but I don't think it's any more reasonable to the average voter. And I think as uh, yeah. Rob Hutton from Bloomberg said, you know, I think the Conservatives would be delighted if Labour spent the next five months, five years arguing about Jeremy Corbyn's attitude to Bin Laden, right? It's, oh. you know, explaining is, is losing in that one. Yeah, and I think in general, the interesting uh, generational split within the Labour Party is obviously, you know, we forget that Corbyn and Blair are roughly the same age. So they're both politicians who came to power in a largely print-dominated era. So they hired a lot of print journalists. Ed Miliband hired two print journalists. Most of the print media is never going to give the Labour Party a fair hearing. They would be, I think, much better off with a, someone immersed in telly and radio, and they'd maybe do a big set-piece interview in the FT, the Guardian, the Mirror, and perhaps even the New Statesman from time to time. I also think there's right. an interesting point about depriving you of one of your best sort of advocates on Fleet Street, because, you know, since um, since Corbyn's election, Seamus Mill has been one of very few columnists in, in Fleet Street who's welcomed it, you know, uh, wholeheartedly. He's been, you know, he's very much in, interested in the project. You know, he was a very strong voice... For, he was actually, you know, and I think that John McTennan picks this up in his piece is that he's now no longer to have, you know, he don't, he's not allowed to have those opinions anymore. So where he's, he was doing one kind of friendly task for the for the Corbyn campaign and its ideals, he can't do that anymore. And actually looking around the papers, I think that people who are Corbyn supporters do have a, 
a, a real grievance, more actually, I think, than SNP supporters who feel that the media is against them, because actually there are really very few people who are sympathetic to, to Corbyn. Whether or not they're sympathetic to broader left-wing aims or that sort of strand of thinking, to him particularly, he has very few allies in, in the press, and one of them has now been sort of disappeared to go and work backstage, basically. Yes, and in some ways, uh, one MP said to me, a brown-eyed MP said, the problem with Ed Miliband's press team is he recruited two of the of the of their most sympathetic journalists to work in his operation and they said well they didn't gain anything to make up for what we lost by not having them on on the other side also i mean pr is a very different job i mean you have to say please all the time that's why i'd be a terrible uh, and not have any opinions of your own stephen <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, on that terrifying note i'll say thank you very much to george and stephen Hi, I'm Caroline. And I'm Anna. And together we host the New Statesman's pop culture podcast, Seriously. This week, we talked about women at the front line of feminism. We looked at the new film Suffragette, E4's new comedy Chewing Gum, and Kim Kardashian's book Selfish. If this sounds like something you would enjoy, you can find this episode and everything else we've done on newstatesman.com forward slash SRSLY. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Gatti, I'm culture editor of The New Statesman, and I'm on the line with William Boyd. Hello, William. Hi there. William Boyd has written us a a uh, terrific review this week of John le Carré, the biography by Adam Sisman. This is a long-awaited um, biography of le Carré, um, uh, unauthorised, written with cooperation. What's the, what's the score there, William? I think it's um, uh, written with cooperation. Um, Adam Sisman says in his introduction he has spent more than 50 hours uh, talking to uh, John le Carré. So... That, that, as far as I can see, that's pretty pretty much an authorised biography. Certainly, he didn't put, um, prevent, try to prevent him. Mm. Um, so I think we can assume that um, this is pretty much uh, the story as Le Carre would have liked. Though Sisman is also at pains to stress that you know he, he didn't have any remit, or there was uh, you know, Le Carre wouldn't tell him things he didn't want him to know. But uh, that Sisman was not um, kind of writing to order. Because it, um, it's, it's sort of on the public record that uh, for a while Robert Harris was slated to be um, writing a biography of Le Carre, and that seems to have just sort of quietly fizzled out. Yes, I think what happened was that uh, Robert Harris passed the torch on to mm. Adam Sisman. So this, in a way, is the um, biography that uh, Harris would have written, but mm. um, uh, I don't think he... I don't, I don't know why he decided he, he wouldn't do it. Maybe it was just too much like hard work but anyway Adam Sisman is an excellent biographer and so I think it was a, a kind of um, you know mutually agreed handing on of the of the task 
One of the most interesting things that emerges from this biography, certainly um, from the piece that you've written about it, is Le Carre's relationship with his father. What sort of man was he? Well, he's an extraordinary man, um, a, a sort of, uh, I say in the piece, an almost mythic figure, sort of uh, con man, millionaire, um, you know, he mixed in the upper reaches of society, and then the, the next month he'd be in jail for, for bankruptcy and embezzling. So he's an extraordinary, you know, fringe society underworld figure, um, and, you know, an impossible man, clearly. Um, and in a way, somebody whose presence until he died completely haunted Le Carre, not surprisingly. Um, he, he really is, uh, he is a, a character out of some astonishing, you know, Grand Guignol novel of his own, of his own right. Um, and Le Carre has, actually has written about him uh, before. He, in his novel, The Perfect Spy, there's a, a very clear Ronnie figure. And also he wrote a long uh, memoir of his father in The New Yorker um, some years ago. So uh, he has been trying to exercise the, the demon. Um, but this biography really gives us the whole story and, and it is extraordinary. And is there a sense of what, as well as, you know, putting him in a in some pretty tricky situations and tricky and, and conflicted situations growing up, is there a sense of what effect uh, that relationship with his father might have had on on his on his later life? Does does Sisman uh, speculate in that way, or is this a very sort of cut and dried, leave the interpretation up to the reader type affair? Well, I think you know, Carey. Um, as he got older and was married and became successful, sort of cut himself off from his father, you know, quite ruthlessly. I mean, they did see each other, um, but it's significant that um, he didn't go to the memorial service of his father when he died. So I think it's, uh, in his early 30s, he made a decision that, you know, he was he was not going to have anything more to do with Ronnie. But I think, you know, psychologically, there's there's no doubt that he he must have had a huge effect on 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 the carry or as a as a young man, um, the, the massive insecurities of the kind of life, the rackety life he led, the social embarrassments that that occurred, um, this kind of dark semi-criminal figure haunting your life, um, and you know, Le Carre was enlisted by him to do uh, all sorts of slightly shady jobs, negotiating with hotel managers in Switzerland, you know, delivering um, packages to you know, rich widows in Paris. Uh, and as a as a very young man, it is another extraordinary thing in, the, in in his early twenties. You know, he was leading that slightly glamorous, semi-criminal, shady life himself in Saint Moritz and Paris and gambling holidays in Monte Carlo. So there's a whole you know shady um, side of being Ronnie's son that um, must have had a huge effect on on the way Le Carre evolved uh, as an individual. And then he once he had his own independence, he he cut him off. And um, you, you, you talk in the piece about, um, you make a comparison with uh, Le Carre's interest in chronicling his time, his, his instinct to point out injustices, leads to a, a sort of comparison in his writing with Dickens, but actually, and thinking about his father especially, his life had some curious parallels with Dickens's, didn't it? Yes, I mean, that was the first thing that struck me, that, that Le Carre's childhood, if you didn't know it was Le Carre's childhood, you'd think it might have come from a, a Dickens novel, this, you know, the abandoned as an infant, his, his mother left home and Le Carre was five, and he really had nothing more to do with her. And so Ronnie took over the, the education, but having this semi-criminal 
you know, um, gangster figure as your father, and then leading that again, that shady kind of life in in mm. his uh, doing his bidding is is the stuff of of, of fiction. Uh, but then it struck me that, that you could extend the parallel, and um, that in a way, Le Carre's novels um, are are Dickensian in the sense that they are chronicles of of our time or of the Cold War, the late Cold War, and Le Carre's style and his love of slightly Dickensian names, etc., etc., make it seem valid in a literary sense as well as in a, in a biographical mm. sense. Another thing that, that comes out of the book, I think, is, um, you know, just how, and we talked about this earlier, just how establishment Le Carre's upbringing was. You know, as you say, boarding school, Oxford undergraduate, Eton schoolmaster, army officer, foreign office diplomat. And it um, it reminded me there was a recent biography of one of the Cambridge spies, Guy Burgess, by Andrew Lowney, um, which describes a similar upbringing and, and, and painted a very evocative picture of a man who sort of clung to his old Etonian tie all his life as a, as a badge of identity. Um, now, Le Carre had a slightly different relationship with with those institutions to that what what was his what was his feelings towards those institutions that that shaped him well i think he was um suspicious and he didn't uh, fit in even though on the surface he looks you know absolutely prototypically uh, a kind of rising young man with within those kind of ranks and he himself has said and i think in his picture has explored um the fact that you know it might have just as he might just as easily have been a double agent as a spy. Um, that these our traitors, our our, our famous five, as it were, were um, were all highly privileged, well-educated young men, but they chose to work for the Russians. And Le Carre was exactly like that, but he chose to work for MI6. But he he's aware of the the, the kind of blurred line between being on on the MI6 side or or actually you know, going rogue and 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 turning your turning against the society that that shaped you and nurtured you um, that's the great sort of intellectual um, fascination i think of our our traitors now double agents it's why did they why did these people with silver spoons in their mouth uh, mouths uh, turn against their country uh, and i think that we'll continue asking ourselves that question for a long time to come mm, absolutely and he's writing in a in a time where a lot of the sort of sheen and glamour of of that part of society is 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 rubbing off and um again that i was struck by the picture of guy burgess you know in his slightly shabby suit in in moscow these these um imperial elite establishments were were sort of crumbling at the edges weren't they Yes, and I think it is the it is the end of empire as well. That's the interesting thing that all these all these young men were born at the at the apotheosis of the British Empire, if you like, in the in the in the twenties and the and the thirties, and and saw saw it collapse and saw the the half the map that was painted red slowly re return to other colours. And so there's a sense of uh, of, of empire ending, and uh, you see that slight decadence. Uh, arrive throughout history that um, that it, it provokes a kind of insecurity and a kind of self-analysis that often uh, ends up being destructive. As we're in the slightly sort of feverish moment just before the release of a new Bond film, and and indeed as you've you've written a Bond novel yourself, um, I wanted to ask what 
intersection there might be, if any, between uh, Le Carre's and Fleming's work? Well, I think that the I think in the on the level of the novels, uh, um, there's a there is a slight intersection, but there's there's no doubt that Fleming's novels are are fantasies in a way, and um, that Le Carre's um, are, are thoroughly rooted in the in this slightly seedy, you know, day-to-day business of, of being a spy. So there is a gulf between the two writers, even though they're both, you know, notionally spy novelists. Also, it has to be said that Le Carre is a far superior writer, technically, mm. yeah. than, than Fleming. But the, the two men are interesting in that they, they're both privileged and, um, and uh, you know, slightly tormented. And uh, they, they, were, they would both be familiar absolutely with that uh that upper class um world of uh spying and clubs which is in a way classically bond but i don't think um apart from that there is any real crossover between the two worlds is, i mean is it fair to say that that fleming's approach is more celebratory and, and fetishistic of that world than than le Carre's? well it is it's interesting the more you look at fleming the, the initial sort of surface gloss and fantasy in the better Bond novels is actually uh, more um, thoughtful. Mm. The interesting thing, I mean, let's say I think that From Russia With Love is Fleming's best novel and and it's most realistic. But actually, when you look closely at the Bond novels, you know, Bond is actually sometimes quite an inefficient and unsuccessful spy. It's not all uh, fantastic uh, acts of daring do. Um, of course, the films have taken that and and, and turned it into something entirely different. But mm. in in Fleming's novels, Bond often makes mistakes. There's often malfunctions in the security services. So, to a certain extent, his own experience of working in in SIS during World War II uh, had shown him that not everything goes swimmingly well. And and he does reflect that. But of course, the myth of Bond has has overtaken these these details and. Uh, uh, he is uh, you know, the, the great English hero, even though he's not even English. He's half half Scottish, half Swiss. Um, but it's uh, it, it's um, it's there to be discovered, but it's it's pretty pretty well buried. And have you seen Spectre yet? Were you at the not yet? Last no, night? Not, no, not yet. No, um, I, uh, I I may well take it in at some stage because <laughs> uh, I'm a great fan of Daniel Craig, and so I have to I have to see what what his latest work is, is like. <laughs> And finally, this is sort of totally off topic, but um, I can't resist asking you about your time at the New Statesman uh, in the early 80s, because you were our TV critic, weren't you? Yes, I was TV critic of New Statesman uh, for two years, uh, almost, in the, in, uh, in the 80s, uh, early 80s, 80, 81 to 83, approximately. Um, and it was a, an interesting time. Um, Martin Amos had just left as literary editor, and I took over the job of TV critic from Julian Barnes. Um, Craig, Craig Rain was the poetry editor. Um, James Fenton was still writing the odd, the odd piece. Christopher Hitchens was, was around. So it was, in a way, a, a, an amazing moment to come into the, the Statesman. And it was a magazine that, as a, as a, as a student, I, I read with a, an avidity, which I have never really um, <laughs> reproduced since. It was the must-read um, uh, weekly, uh, and it had this incredible um, cast of writers and you know, regular reviewers like you know, Blake Morrison and 
Jeremy Triglown and so on, people who rose up the greasy pole of the literary establishment, but were all writing for the New Statesman in the in the late 70s and the and the early 80s. So it was a, a great time to be in the magazine. Um, but you know, times have changed, and there's no way that that, that those days could be reproduced today. But um, it was a kind of um, um, seat of your pants. Um, you know, get, get your copy in at the. La- I used. To, I was living in Oxford, and I I used to jump on the train and deliver my copy by hand. That just shows you how how old-fashioned the whole thing was. So, who was your editor there? Um, Gillian Wilkes was my was doing your job, Tom, and she had taken over from Martin. Um, but there was a new. Um, editor at the time, an Australian called Bruce Page, and actually he quite radically transformed the magazine. He was far more interested in politics, and so the, the front half of the paper of the magazine became, uh, as it were, more important. And the back pages, um, which were you know fantastic, uh, almost unrivaled in their kind of literary you know fizz and sparkle, um, sort of suffered a bit under Bruce Page's editorship. Um, but uh, it was, uh, it was a, you know, all, all, all magazines or newspapers go through cycles, but it was a, a great cycle to be part of. It. Um, and, um, you know, I really enjoyed my two years, but um, I'll never write a column again, I have to say. Oh, <laughs> really? Utterly knackered. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I did get... Um, I did get a very early video recorder out of the job. So, um, it's, uh, it, again, it seems like ancient history, but um, it was fun as well. And there was a great crowd of people to, to work with. So, yeah, as you can imagine. Wonderful. Um, well, thanks very, much, uh, thanks very much for joining us, Will. Great. And it's gra- I'm glad I'm still writing for the magazine. Yeah, well, I, was, I should say I'm probably contractually obliged to say that, of course, it goes without saying that the New Statesman is entering a great second, uh, third yeah. or fourth or fifth golden age uh, Yeah, I think now. it is. I think it is. <laughs> Thanks very much, Will. Okay, okay. Thanks, Tom. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast presented by me, Helen Lewis, and produced by Anna Leskovitz. You can find us every week at newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.